here at the Jerusalem Channel, we work hard to keep you informed and up to date on prophetic end time events in the Holy Land. But we also see so many great humanitarian needs. And that's why your support is helping to keep this ministry lifting up the name of the Lord in the Middle East. One of our most recent projects was to donate and dedicate a fully equipped ambulance to Israel's National Volunteer Rescue Service. The ambulance is available to assist everyone, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and yes, even tourists who might need medical assistance. So thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel by your gifts through our website or through our ministry addresses in the USA and the United Kingdom. Please help us to be a blessing to all the people of the Holy Land. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. In the miraculous Six Day War, when Jerusalem was unified under Jewish sovereignty in 1967, the defense minister at the time, Moshe Dayan, relinquished control of the traditional Temple Mount back to the Muslim authority in order, as he put it, to keep the peace. In hindsight, was that a wise decision? After centuries of not controlling the holy site, should Israel have relinquished sovereignty over the territory for which she had prayed for so long to regain? And one of the most intriguing questions is this. Was the Dome of the Rock originally built by a Muslim caliph as a house of prayer for the Jewish people? And if so, what are the implications? Should the traditional Temple Mount be a shared space for all the children of Abraham? Hello, I'm Christine Dark. Behind me is the most recognizable landscape of Jerusalem, known as the traditional Temple Mount to the Jews and the noble sanctuary to the Muslims. Ever since General Moshe Dayan made the fateful decision in 1967 to let the Arabs maintain control of the Temple Mount, non-Muslims, visitors to Judaism's holiest site have been restricted in their freedom to visit. These days, you're carefully watched by officials from the Islamic Authority and these monitors have definitely limited what visitors can do. For example, no praying out loud or other worshipful acts. There are metal detectors at the areas where Jews and Christians enter to visit the holy site during limited hours, but Israel has acquiesced and removed metal detectors from Muslims to calm objections from all over the Islamic world. Of course, metal detectors are a necessary part of life in these days of mass terrorism. You could hardly stay in a hotel in major cities around the world or board an airplane without going through one. Even Disneyland has metal detectors. These structures have become memorial arches to terrorists. 
but the lack of basic metal detectors enabled three terrorists to enter the Temple Mount with guns and murder two Israeli police officers there. The officers who were killed happened to be not Jews, but Druze. And who are the Druze? We need to know who these biblical people, the Druze, are. They're the descendants of Jephro of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. Jethro is the Druze's spiritual founder and chief prophet. The Druze are peace-loving and loyal to the countries where they live. Therefore, the minority community of the Israeli Druze serve proudly in the Israeli Defense Forces and the police. We personally know many Druze, including members of the Israeli Parliament, the Knesset. One Druze member of Knesset, Majali Wahhabi, rose so high in Israeli life that he became the acting president of the Jewish state in 2007. Majali is proof positive that Israel is not an apartheid state. In fact, Arabs occupy senior positions on the Israeli police force in the Knesset as well as the judiciary. South Africans who lived under apartheid could only dream of obtaining such positions. For example, Salim Gibran is a Christian Arab who holds a permanent seat on the Israeli Supreme Court. He's the second Arab judge to hold a Supreme Court appointment. Ishmael Khaldi, a Bedouin, is a diplomat in the foreign ministry. Ayub Kara is a Druze member of Knesset and cabinet member. And in an unprecedented case, former Israeli President Moshe Katsav was convicted of two counts of rape, obstruction of justice, and other charges, and he was sentenced to prison by an Arab judge, George Kara. Think of that. And these are just a few examples of minorities who hold prominent positions in Israel. But because of the murders of the two Druze policemen on the traditional Temple Mount, Israel had no choice but to reinstate more stringent security measures. The Temple Mount officials claimed the Jerusalem holy site is exclusively Islamic because it contains a mosque, the silver-colored dome, and a shrine, the golden dome on the rock. Muslims call the traditional Temple Mount the Haram al-Sharif, meaning noble sanctuary. But they no longer recognize Israel's historical right to this ancient real estate. Well, opposition to metal detectors is bizarre since security apparatus is designed to protect everybody without discrimination. This is, Israel says, collective protection, not collective punishment. It was for this very same reason, to prevent terror, that Saudi officials installed security equipment at the entrance to the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the holiest site for Muslims. In fact, religious sites around the world, from Mecca to Rome, are laden with extensive security measures. For example, at Mecca, there are 5,000 cameras, and more than 100,000 people are employed to provide security during the annual Hajj pilgrimage. Well, as we watch the news unfold over the Temple Mount, I'm meditating continually on the relevance of Psalm 2. 
This psalm is God's commentary on the whole controversy. It asks, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that reference is to the Lord's Messiah, Jesus. They say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But verse 4 says, and I love this, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Because he says, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the kings of the earth are urged to be wise, and to serve the Lord with fear, and to kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And they perish from the way when his wrath is kindled. And blessed are all of they that put their trust in him. Hallelujah. All of this controversy revolves around contested real estate. But I want to share with you an article that I read this week by David Mark headlined Temple Mount Solution. History shows that Islam shared the Dome of the Rock with the Jews. Well, the Dome of the Rock was built in 691 by the Umayyad Caliph named Abd al-Malik. But it was never treated as a mosque until later in the Islamic period. Research shows that the Dome of the Rock folds in on itself in veneration, not of Mecca, but a holy rock. And to the Jews, this rock bears great significance because they believe it's the very spot of Abraham's binding of his son Isaac. Four pillars surround the dome. Now, the four pillars reportedly represent the four camps of the Israelites in the wilderness, and the 12 columns represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I found David Mark's article so intriguing that I did some more digging and came across another article entitled, The Riddle of the Dome of the Rock. Was it built by a Jewish loving caliph as a place of prayer for the Jews? This article was based upon information in a book published in Hebrew by Yaakov Ophir. Research conducted by Ophir claims that Abed al-Malik, who built the Dome of the Rock, was an ally of the Jews, and he built it for them as a house of prayer. Al-Malik was the Caliph of Damascus who controlled the land of Israel in those days. According to Ophir and others, Al-Malik was actually a follower of the Jewish faith and ordered his citizens to pray with their faces towards Jerusalem instead of Mecca and to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem instead of Mecca. Ophir maintained that the Dome of the Rock was never built as a mosque and the character of the building is not typical of a mosque, although it is one of the oldest structures in Islamic architecture. 
is said to have emulated and rivaled Christian architecture of the time. Well, the original dome collapsed in an earthquake in 1015, but was rebuilt within a decade. After the Crusaders captured Jerusalem in 1099, the Dome of the Rock became a church. The Knights Templar claimed the dome was the site of the Temple of Solomon, and they called it the Templum Domini, the Temple of God. When Jerusalem was captured by Saladin, the Dome of the Rock was reconsecrated as a Muslim shrine. The cross on top was replaced by a crescent. However, remember, according to Yaakov Ophir's research, the shrine was originally a Jewish house of prayer. After the Abbasid kingdom defeated the Umayyad kingdom, the memory of the last house of prayer for the Jews was erased, and the name of the pro-Jewish caliph, Abbot al-Malik, was removed. Al-Malik was reportedly called the righteous by the Jews, but was slandered by the Islamic historians as an unbeliever, a kafir. In one of Ophir's conclusion that the Dome of the Rock was originally built as a Jewish house of worship, David Mark wrote that Al-Malik's building attempted to mimic in style the former Jewish temples. According to his explanation, the dome represents a navel in keeping with the Jewish idea that the shrine's sacred rock is the navel of the world. He claims that birds carved on the windows represent the cherubim. The capitals of the pillars are reminiscent of the tops of palm trees, another Jewish motif. On the walls inside the dome and also at the southern entrance there are palm, grape, and fig designs some of the seven species mentioned in the Torah as being native to the Holy Land. Well, in his Hebrew book, The Riddle of the Dome of the Rock, Ophir also wrote of other details that point to Jewish origins. Reportedly in 691, Abed el-Malik gave the Jews the right to manage the Temple Mount. He allowed them to light candles in the Dome of the Rock he, in effect, returned the Temple Mount to the Jews. When the Abbasids defeated the Umayyads, they revoked rights from the Jews and prohibited them from entering the Temple Mount. Well, Ophir's theory is strengthened by the testimony of Jews who visited the Temple Mount in the early times of the Arab occupation of Jerusalem. They reportedly told of the existence of a Jewish house of prayer on what is believed to be the traditional Temple Mount. According to a testimony by the famous Kararite, Ben Yehoham, after the Ishmaelites occupied Jerusalem, they gave permission to Israel to enter the Temple Mount to live there. They gave the Jews the courtyards of the house of God, and they prayed there for many years, but later were evicted. The famous rabbi known as the Ramban wrote in 1165 he visited Jerusalem and the traditional Temple Mount to pray in what he called the Great House on the place of the Holy of Holies. Well, could these historical references be proof of Ophir's 
theory that the Dome of the Rock was originally meant to be a Jewish building? Despite the more recent history and animosities between Arabs and Israelis, apparently there is historical evidence that the Umayyads were friendly to the Jews and that the Umayyad dynasty invited the Jews to pray on the holy site. Well, with all of this history in mind, David Mark postulates that a possible solution to the tensions involving the Temple Mount would be to use early Islamic history as a moral guide. He wrote that it would seem appropriate that the house of prayer known today as the Dome of the Rock that Al-Malik built for the Jews could serve both the Jews and their half-brothers. According to David Mark, understanding that the Dome of the Rock was meant to be a shared space for prayer by the children of Abraham until the arrival of the Messiah would be a peaceful step toward coexistence. In such an ideal world, would there even be need for metal, metal detectors or police? However, such security measures are installed at the Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron, where both Jews and Muslims visit. David Mark wrote, the children of Yitzhak and Ishmael could once again coexist together both presumably using the Dome of the Rock. But many Bible-believing Jews and evangelical Christians who study and watch Bible prophecy would see such a move at this point in time as not only prophetic, but troublesome. However, I found a fascinating statement in David Mark's article that the Jewish sages taught that Ishmael will return in the end to the proper path. Is it so far-fetched to believe that Jews and Muslims could also share the Temple Mount? No doubt the end-time scenario is playing out exactly according to Bible prophecy, and it's our duty as watchmen and intercessors to watch this space and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's also the possibility, however, that God might surprise everybody with an amazing archaeological find in the city of David nearby that could solve the issue of having to share the traditional Temple Mount. And that possibility would be the discovery that the Jewish temples were actually located in the city of David instead of the traditional Temple Mount, the Haram al-Sharif. And we discussed that possibility in our video archives. Well, in the meantime, you may ask, why? Why all of this continuing controversy over a place the Muslims call the Noble Sanctuary, the Jews call the Temple Mount, and the Bible calls Zion? The Word of God gives its own answer in Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. You see, because of God's long-suffering and mercy, finally, the long-delayed day of retribution will come at last. And this would be the day of punishment from the hand of God for the persistent hostility against the Jews and the city He has chosen as His personal address on earth. You see, the rebirth of the nation of Israel in our time is surely unique in history. The Jewish nation has been destroyed twice but also regathered and resurrected twice. The first time of restoration and regathering was after the Babylonian captivity. 
In 586 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Jewish nation, Jerusalem, and the first temple built by King Solomon. This destruction resulted in nearly all the Jews being taken captive away to Babylon. But God kept the Jews, and the Sabbath separated them and kept them as a distinct people. They remained in Babylon for 70 years and then were allowed to return to rebuild Jerusalem in their second temple. The Romans, some 650 years later in 70 AD, destroyed Jerusalem again and the second temple. Once again, the Jewish people were defeated. They were put to the sword and dispersed this time into all the world. Why didn't the people of Israel cease to be a nation after such a long devastation? How could they have survived? Again, the Sabbath and their traditions kept them, but ultimately, of course, it was God who caused them to survive and to return. And the nation was literally resurrected in 1948. Let's consider the amazing prophetic timeline that we've been living through, especially in this time as I speak. 1897 was considered the beginning of modern Zionism. That's when the first Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland. It's been exactly 120 years since the beginning of the Zionist movement. And from the Balfour Declaration, declaring British approval of a Jewish homeland, it's been exactly 100 years. And from the uniting of Jerusalem as the Jewish capital, it's exactly 50 years. And you know, one of the principles of the Jubilee year, 50 years, is that property reverts to its rightful owners. That's the teaching in Leviticus, in the Torah. So things are looking up for Israel, yet sentiments are similar to how people were thinking before both world wars. Tragically, today, there's still this sickness increasing of anti-Semitism with the United Nations and the European Union continually condemning Israel for building up the Holy Land. And increasingly, the nations are grasping for Jerusalem and demanding that the holy city be divided and made the capital of a Palestinian state. God has other blueprints. He declares in Zechariah 12 that he's made Jerusalem an immovable rock, and all who attempt to meddle and move Jerusalem will be severely injured by it. As we watch end-time prophecy coming to pass, God vows that he will be vindicated in the sight of all nations. Why? So that as Psalm 83 declares, men may know that you alone, whose name is Yehovah, are the most high over all the earth. In fact, Psalm 83 implores God not to remain silent. It says, see how your enemies conspire against your people. With cunning they plot against your cherished ones, saying, Come, let us destroy them as a nation, so that the name of Israel is remembered no more. It says, With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you, God. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites and so forth, and then it names the surrounding nations. 
And verse 12 says, because they said, let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Then the psalmist implores the Lord, make them like tumbleweed, like chaff before the wind as fire consumes the forest. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord. Why? So that they will seek your name. You see, Psalm 83 teaches that all these harsh judgments are actually the mercy of God in action to bring these nations to themselves, to snap them out of pride and deception, to give them an opportunity to turn and to repent. And verse 18 of the Psalm concludes, let them know that you whose name is the Lord are alone the most high over all the earth. No other God. Hallelujah. And the same sentiment is expressed in the great prophetic chapter of Ezekiel 38. God is going to tell the world who he is concerning the controversy over Zion. Verse 16 in that chapter says to Israel's enemies, you shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud covering the land. And it will happen in the latter days. He says, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Yes, Abba Father, glorify your name. The commentaries on this teach that the salvation of Israel is founded upon the sanctification of God's name during the time of this Ezekiel war. The nations will learn beyond a shadow of a doubt that you, hey, vav, hey, Yehovah is the Lord. When God says in Ezekiel, I will bring you against my land, he's saying that any invasion of Israel happens only by divine permission. It's all under his divine control. Then God says, when you invade, my fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. The aggressors against Israel are described in the Bible as having great pride and an arrogant self-confidence. But all the more greater will be their downfall and humiliation by the God of Israel. They oppose Israel arrogantly, but will be defeated in measure in dishonor and disgrace. They will come in great numbers, but they will be decimated. They will terrorize, but they will be defeated by the Almighty with much contempt and scorn. Then the God of Israel will be glorified, magnified, and sanctified in the eyes of many nations. By saving his own people, he will confound the selfish and aggressive plans of Israel's enemies. So let all the terrorists read Psalm 2. For he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. How, is, how can we pray as merciful intercessors? Let us pray Psalm 33, which says the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. It's the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. 
In the meantime, what shall we do as we see prophetic history coming to a culmination? Well, I encourage you to keep looking up, but also to keep doing the exploits of the Lord, for He's coming soon. And so now is the time to complete the works, the exploits of the Lord. And I'm so happy that the fellowship of like-minded believers is precious in these exciting but potentially dangerous last days. So we can stay in touch through the social media and also at our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our electronic newsletter, Exploits. And at our website, all of our previous videos are available for viewing around the clock as well as we have an archive of spiritual articles on end time topics, faith and healing. And now you can download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your favorite app store to watch our videos on your mobile phones or tablets. Our app also offers daily Bible readings and details of our upcoming events and conferences. And we post prayer points at our website to help you to be an effective watchman on the walls. And so always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg, Maranatha, and Shalom.